<laughs> just kind of, yeah. <laughs> One, two, three, four. Keep rolling. All right. Okay. One, two, three, four. Welcome to After the Deluge. I'm Justin Cox. As the Eternal Cowboy is the second full-length record by Against Me and the first of two on Fat Records. It was produced by Rob McGregor at Ardent Studios in Memphis, and it's also my personal favorite Against Me record. The disco before the breakdown is either a single or an EP, depending on what you read, that came out about a year earlier. We bundled that amazing release in with this one today. Uh, Against Me's As the Eternal Cowboy sits in between two phases of the band. The sort of anarcho-laundromat against me that came before this, and the music industry sellout against me that comes after. Uh, You can find traces of both deep in these songs, but this is its own thing. It's its own moment, and it kind of feels like a little pivot point. I had a similar realization when I was making the Bright Eyes season of this show last year. Lifted, the record, comes after the kind of like swoopy-haired emo Bright Eyes, but before the acoustic folk bard, like our generation's Bob Dylan narrative of I'm Wide Awake, It's Morning, and Casadega. It's a separate third thing that like stands alone and also happens to be my favorite Bright Eyes record. This is like a discovery I'm making right now that um, I'll be keeping an eye out for more of these sort of like in-between records, and I'll let you know what I turn up. If you know of any, find me on social media. My handle is Routine Layup on the main sites, and let me know. This record zips by in like 25 minutes. The story is that they lied to Fat Mike about having a record written, and when the time came to deliver, Laura Jane Grace ferociously journaled, and then the band got together and banged out what you hear on As the Eternal Cowboy. My guest today is Ryan Page, who plays in the band Bad Dads. Full disclosure, I too play in Bad Dads. Against Me was a formative band for both of us, and we've had conversations like this one many, many times. I was excited to bottle one up for the podcast. Uh, we also made a podcast together early in the pandemic called Beatles vs. Stones, year by year. It went from 1964 to 74, comparing the Beatles and the Rolling Stones in each of those years as, as that decade of time plays out. It's really fun, and a realization that I just had while recording this is that Rubber Soul and Revolver, those are both in-between records for the Beatles. They don't fit in the sort of pop sensation Ed Sullivan era, and they also don't fit in the sort of like full-on psychedelia Sgt. Pepper's phase of the Beatles. They got pieces of both, but they are their own thing. Thank you for indulging me on this little journey I'm taking right now. And one really quick favor. If you can, open up YouTube and type in After the Deluge and subscribe to the channel there. There's cool video clips and everything like that from all these interviews. Frank Turner, Connor Oberst, Tim Kasher, Dan Ozzie, everyone. I'm like 30 subscribers away from being able to claim that channel to where it's like I have full ownership of it and everything. And I'd like to be able to do that before the year ends. So go to YouTube, type after the deluge, hit subscribe, done deal. Here is my conversation with Ryan Page about As the Eternal Cowboy and the disco before the breakdown. Sleep on pillows made in Singapore Wrapped in comforters Sweating through sheets Drink your coffee in the morning Floating on aeroplanes across vast seas And your house is made of wood What makes me qualified to be on uh, After the Deluge Pod to talk about as the Eternal Cowboy? And I thought of three things that made me uh, uniquely qualified to talk about these. One is I had a poster of the disco before the breakdown in my bedroom when uh, that's good during this time period. Two is that 
the song on uh, Disco Before the Breakdown, uh, tonight we're going to give it 35%. It, the, the last words of the song are, if you told me this when I was 15, I never would have believed it. I was 15 when As nice. the Eternal Cowboy came out. And the third reason that makes me uniquely qualified, this is the most unique reason, is that I'm definitely the only person that has or will ever come on this podcast that can say that they have backed you up singing the song Sink Florida Sink at a local bar open mic. So those are my bona fides. Your, your bona fides are that and a lot more. You're sort of the like, you've also been on every season of this podcast. And I remember, tell me if I'm right about this, like we met at a concert, like a sort of house show barn concert and talked about music at that. And I'm pretty sure we talked about Jackson Brown and Against Me at that. That seems highly probable. Yeah, it's, so. it would be actually strange if I didn't bring up Against Me somehow, because I'm very comfortable in placing them as one of my favorite bands. And when during that time period when I was 15 and as the Eternal Cowboy was coming out, I would have th confidently told anyone, yes, this is my favorite band and they're releasing a new record. So that's that's the, the context that I'm bringing to it. Well, I got similar feelings, slightly age, age shifted, but a thought I was having was that for a record I've listened to so many times in my life, I don't necessarily know the song titles. Like I know all the songs and I generally know the titles of them. What I was realizing is like, if a record is really, really good, like if it surpasses just being like sort of, yeah, I like a lot of this. If it's just as so good that you hit play at the beginning and you run it all the way through, you don't, you kind of don't need to know the titles of them. I mean, it's also, there's also the trick of, it doesn't really say the titles in any of the songs. Some of them are long, but I was just listening and was like, above maybe any other record in my life, this is the one that's just like, no, I just played this album. I don't, I, if anything, like the standout song is like sink Florida sink or something. And that's the one that I've heard enough to probably, it's probably the only one I don't want to hear all the time. Now I had a very similar realization when you're trying to listen to an album to get ready to talk about a podcast and talk about specific songs. And for me, that specific context was I had known them at least enough in my early teenage years to know this was coming out be excited to to get it when it came out actually had it on cd and then again i was 15 going on 16 at the time this came out so this was basically the first cd that i had when i got a car and this was bring me to like suburban texas to where you're a 15 year old like that because i was whatever age you are like i guess i was 21 turning 21 or something in college and i was finding it and thinking like holy fuck this is the shit like it's unimaginable to me that i was finding it at 15 although maybe if i was 15 at that time i would have been i don't know you know i think that's part of it is that era that i was in so, i mean it seems kind of crazy to me now actually that i could have been exposed to this much music so I would have been 15, you know, I'd say I really like started spending a, a large majority of my free time on the internet around the time I turned 13. So around the year 2000 and going on different forums and things, not music forums specifically, mostly anime forums. If I'm being honest with myself, I forget though, that you were like a message board kid. You're, I was, you were in that shit. I was a big time message board kid. And I somehow, I, I never had actually like an obsession or huge falling with anime that was almost just this like gateway to this wider community of the internet and people on there and 
met people on there, had some cool friends, and there were a few specific three or four people that, you know, would be on message boards and they would say, hey, you should listen to this. Hey, um, you know, here's the Pixies. Here are some things. And these people were on the anime boards. Yeah. Sharing this. Well, because the thing about those message boards would it would always be. I mean, it's kind of similar as message boards now where there would be, you know, hey, here's where you can discuss every episode of Dragon Ball Z or whatever. And then, you know, in that same message board, you'd be like, here's a, you know, just talk about whatever. Here's talk about video games. And this is the section of the message board where we talk about music. Um, and so I went from a place of being in middle school, being in suburbia, that what I was being fed was like new metal, Creed, Stained, uh, Slipknot, all of that kind of stuff, Limp Biscuit. And then one day that became, you know, getting exposed to these bands of, of again, the Pixies of here is Thursday and these kind of emo bands. And and that led straight into like someone being, yeah, and then this band against me, which at the time had only had reinventing Axl Rose. So I was actually a sophomore in high school in 2003 wearing a reinventing Axl Rose shirt. <laughs> to my high school nice. no one having any clue what that was or the band name itself against me is a very provocative thing to wear like i think you know they're to a greater or lesser extent almost a brand at this point that at that time just the band name alone was like setting them apart of like this is not your dad's leonard yeah. skinner kind of against, thing against me with an exclamation point i had the sticker on the back of my car for a little while and i remember my dad just being like everyone's so against me man everyone's against me <laughs> <laughs> yeah like, same so whatever. that's what it's the opposite I, it's the opposite of like a thin blue line sticker on your car <laughs> absolutely so i got i got a car i turned 16 I got my against me sticker on the left side of the bumper <laughs> nice. and I got my bad religion sticker on the right side, which is like, that Damn. was all the messaging that I needed. It really drives home how much of this like musical early identity is like signifiers you want to project outward, not to cheapen it. It just kind of is that. It is that, but honestly coming back and again, I would, I would probably wager that besides like different mix CDs or whatever, that this actual physical CD, which I still have in a CD case somewhere was probably like played in a car CD player. The most of any CD that the, as the eternal cowboy was, has spun more in a car CD player for me than any other album and coming back and listening to it now and really paying attention to it. I was struck by, I really do think there's an undercurrent, in these songs of change and becoming who we want to be mm -hmm. becoming who we are that I don't think I totally, when I was 15 or 16, it was just like, these are rocking songs and I like these songs and I like that they're angry. And I, 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 you know, I'm not really thinking about them too deeper on a deeper level. I'm thinking about them in the terms of this is a band called against me and I want <laughs> everyone's against me. And, you know, I, now as an adult i i'm really always get so stuck i mean on that first song of just if these are my friends if this is my home
something about that really resonated with me as a young man of like, these are the times when you're making those decisions in your life. You're planting your flag in the ground and saying, I mean, these are my bumper stickers kind of thing. I really feel that. I had the same thing in revisiting it. Like, it's like the one that you can sort of map onto your own life a little easier, even though there's a lot of stuff talking about like music and tour and the road and all this kind of stuff a little bit. But like first record is like, I wasn't, I wasn't in like bunker squats with anarchists and shit like that. That was not my childhood. And you know Mm. what I also wasn't doing? Quibbling with record labels about like selling out and like song and structures of like payout deals and things like that, that comes later. This one kind of exists in some middle spot that is like, I was looking at it. I was trying to read it. And it's not like, it's not like against me songs are loaded with proper nouns or something like that, but there's some feeling about this record that is like, it kind of feels placeless and timeless in some way. Like there's no, even if you stack it next to tonight, we're going to give it 35% and um, disco before the breakdown and all those, you, you feel like you're hearing from a person telling you all these specifics you can latch onto. Whereas like as the eternal cowboy just like zips by you it has some feeling to me of like simultaneously I can't place myself within it. I just, it's just happening around me. And also it's so fast and like non-repetitive that I'm not even like latching on to any of this stuff. It's like flying by. I mean, it really does feel like a snapshot in time. And I think the story of this record is that according to the internet, they kind of bluffed fat records and we're like, yeah, we're ready to record a new record if you guys sign us. And then they did. And they didn't really have a new record. And so they had to kind of throw a bunch of material together as as fast as possible. And so with that, it's really this defined moment in time of the band, of Laura's life at that point in time that I think resonates through that and then makes you relate to that point in time that you heard it. I also think because I had that unique experience of being able to discover and experience this band online, I had Reinventing Axl Rose. I loved that record. And then very quickly was able to get my hands on the acoustic EP, get my hands on uh, Disco Before the Breakdown, get my hands on (laughs) songs like I Am Citizen, which I actually weirdly love despite its very (laughs) off-putting recording (laughs) effects. But it was clear to me those songs that... Reinventing Axl Rose, as great as an album as that was, and as much as I love that record, those songs were old, right? They've been through permutations, and there was this feeling of these are Laura's songs that she wrote and she performed. Maybe she was busking on the side of a Gainesville highway or something. I don't know. And then she got a band to come and fill those songs out. And my experience with this record was very much, this is when Against Me becomes a band yeah it fully is it's not yeah they're not reinventing axel rose they're adapting songs and they they sound that way i mean i think that's like part of why they're anthemic songs you feel like you could sing in a room full of people like you're not just gonna i mean you can but you're not just gonna sit with your acoustic guitar on a street corner or in a living room and just just make these songs that are on eternal cowboy these like are like one two three four let's fucking go reinventing axel rose sounds like this like acoustic project bolstered up into a a punk band. Whereas this album sounds like seven or eight pretty fucking rowdy, rambunctious punk songs. And then some acoustic songs sprinkled between them. 
like the songs that that are sort of acoustic sounding sound extra that even more so than they sound mm-hmm. on reinventing axel rose mm-hmm. and i think that was a little bit her thing was like we can throw some of these to the sort of like roots of this band but otherwise i think it was kind of rushed but there's something you can't there's something beautiful in that in just like that's part of the dna of this album why it's so good i don't want to make this argument because it's Reinventing Axl Rose in this album are so kind of different in some ways and in their sound that they're really good in completely different ways. But I want to say it might be their best album or it's I think it's in conversation of my favorite album of theirs. Reinventing Axl Rose is kind of like always the first one. And I feel kind of sorry for anyone that didn't discover against me through that album because it's such an amazing entry point to then branch off to the rest of their discography yeah. but i love short punk songs i love the idea of why is this song four minutes long and the chorus plays five times if i want to hear that i'll just play the song again yeah 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 and the walls contain a resonation laughter the conversation it was fun what lasted but now we should be going and i hope everybody had a Sink Florida Sink is followed by slurring rhythms. And I remember talking to you because like we play in a band together and you coming back with the song Satellites and being like, yeah, why can't a chorus just be, whoa, whoa, whoa. And like they got two songs back to back on this record that are a version of that word sung in whatever melodic kind of way anyone could sing along to. And it's like, you know, you can do that anytime you fucking want. You, you, you can, but also it's actually really hard. And that's something that I, as a musician have loved to find the way to give myself permission to do that. Cause I think when I was younger, I would hear that kind of stuff and be like, what are these woes? Like, can't you replace replacing these woes with words? And now as an older, more mature person and songwriter, I realize going back to the Beatles, it's actually really hard to come up sometimes with those non word sort of phrases. And if you find one, if you get a good one, man, stick that sucker in there. You don't yeah. got, not everything has to have a, a lyric behind it. Yeah, that that presented itself to you. You like, yeah, follow it. Well, what do you think on this one, though? Because simultaneously, yes. But also, I think you could see some of those parts as a byproduct of a band that had to throw songs together quickly. I think across the whole Against Me discography, your mileage may vary on some of the kind of woes and like shout-along type things. The, the, the thing is, I, I don't even... I never even registered them. It's I think it's because it's part of the way I listen to this record. Like even what I was trying to say sort of not so eloquently earlier about the the titles of the songs is like it just it just zips by me. It's like kind of mm-hmm. what this is. I think it's why it's my favorite and I'm not sure how to really even reconcile that because I'm a big fan of songwriting and lyrics and melody and everything. So how is it that my favorite one is the one that feels like I mean, I probably know how to play 
bought half the songs on Reinventing Axl Rose. I think I only know Sink Floor to Sink and maybe I think I might know just the acoustic ones on this one. Mm-hmm. It doesn't present itself that way. It's more like it's a vibe, a vibe and a feeling and a, a, a thing like that or something. I don't know. As a musician who is want to go on tab websites and just like pull up against me and be like, what's an against me song I haven't played in a while? Or what's one that I don't know how to play that I'd like to learn and has tried to do acoustic. They just don't super lend themselves to that. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I think in some ways it's a maturity thing of Laura and James Bowman are actually their guitar parts are playing off each other in in ways that make the songs that are essential to the songs. And you can't do that with an acoustic guitar. But I think part of the appeal, and this can backfire sometimes, but sometimes I really like the album, the like dump everything. We got to write an album. We got to just like empty your brains. Those songs that you've been playing for the past five years they're they're not here to save you anymore. So what can you come up with in a week? My, one of my favorite stories, which I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, is the Stooges on their first album. They recorded it with John Cale. And he was like, you guys, we're, we're going to go record an album. So they went to the studio and they recorded the songs they had. And they had like five songs. And John Cale's like, these are great, but this isn't an album. This is five. Well, he's John. He was like, this isn't an album. This is five songs. Like, you guys need more songs. You, this is what the what the hell, guys? <laughs> and so allegedly that like John Cale said that to them that night, they went back to their hotel and wrote like three or four more songs and then came back to the studio next day and recorded them. And that's the first that's so cool. album. That's cool. I don't know if that's true. And. I know that that has backfired on many of bands that are not the Stooges or against me. I, I don't want to get into this too early, but I was circling back to Get Back by the Beatles. And that early stuff of that documentary is kind of them in that mode, which let's write them now. Right. Yeah. They're, but they, they, like, they, they, they kind of gave themselves this quick deadline and it's like, we'll just go into the studio. We'll go into this movie studio space and we'll just like figure these out. And in that sense, ultimately it worked out, but in that first week or two, it did, it did not work. Didn't feel like it was happening. I want to say like, oh, it's awesome. It's always great when bands just like, you know, l- whatever comes out, comes out. It's not always awesome. But in this case, like, I really appreciate the results. And I think I think Laura had to rely more on the other guys in the band for this effort. And so I th- I really paying close attention to this listen through. I think James really shines on this record and. Laura, to her credit, gives him a lot of room to shine on this track. I read like two or three pages of Tranny today, which I don't do for every episode, but I did today for whatever reason I felt compelled to do that. But like it, it was saying that it was like, yep, we lied. We basically lied and said we had it, had the record done. Kind of like when I got my current job and lied that I knew how to use the Adobe suite. But, <laughs> you know, you learn it and you learn quick and dirty and some pretty it. cool, some pretty cool results can come of it. I'll stand by it. 
I think she says like, I started journaling out these songs and then we showed up and then the band starts jamming. And if you read this shit, like it sounds, I mean that in, in her book, there's a lot of stuff like that. That's like just plucked from what feels like journal entries, but these songs are basically paragraphs from journals sung out into songs, you know, like they Mm -hmm. rarely repeat stuff. It's a little different than the, like, let's get into the studio and write it. Like it's, it's, I, I, I think there is something to like what you're saying about the Beatles thing, but a little bit like, I'm going to write this stuff out. We're going to go play loud music. I'm going to yell this stuff over that music. That will be what the album is. (laughs) Let's hope this works out. What I think is funny about it is that whatever like record label interest and everything that comes from like starting with reinventing Axl Rose grows almost exponentially after this album. And I wouldn't expect that unless all you need is sink Florida sink and Cavalier eternal to show the, or, or unless they're just looking at like whatever feeding frenzy of punk music is, but it's kind of late for that. Like there's already the, the record industry is already imploding by this time how you come out of this album and be like, this is the one we want to sign to a massive major label. It kind of doesn't totally make sense to me. I hear what you're saying. I think it's a natural progression. I I think probably music A&R guys are smarter than us. And what they're seeing is a, a charismatic live band with a charismatic front person, right? Yeah. Um, And then to see- Like a devout following. But even right away, there's just less screaming on this album, which, you know, good, bad or otherwise, there's no question that was a that was a, a direction towards uh, probably more mainstream, not necessarily intentional on against me's part. But I'm just saying if I'm an A&R rep, I'm hearing that and going, OK, this is more I can understand 90 percent of the words on this record and and thinking specifically of I'm, I'm thinking of this as a band that I might want to sign to a major label. You get to cliche Guevara and, and that chorus where they're shouting a new a new way like that's that's almost the template for what their major label records yeah. sound like right so that right I maybe there's some sing floor to sink or Cavalier Eternal I mean I think I think those songs are fantastic and, and memorable until the end of time I don't know that they're like selling a lot of albums I think that like piece right there is where you hear and you say okay here's can I just cut and pay, take this out and like have the band focus on this songwriting and I can sell this to whatever I'm selling? Maybe I get that. But I I think while it has less like crazy, crazy unhinged screaming, it also has less melody and less accessible hooks to it. You know, I don't know. I can hear the pop songs behind all almost everything on Reinventing Axl Rose in some way that I don't think is I don't feel that way about this one. Really? my main feeling about why I love this record so much and my relationship with it is that it's one that I can be like, I just want to hear something and get like energized in some way, in some positive way. And I can go to this record and something about the way I hear the songs, maybe sink floor to sink aside. But even from that, I I love it. We've played it before and everything, mostly because I'm shitty at guitar and I can remember the chords, but, but it doesn't have the thing to me. That's like, I don't need to hear this song again. The songs are all slightly like immune to that feeling of like, oh, there, there, there are songs by bands I love that I'm just sort of like, well, you know, the the groove has been worn very, very deep on this melody for me. And I think I probably don't need to hear it again unless it's like involuntary or some special time in my life when I make a podcast about it. 
And this album doesn't have that. Going back to that idea of this, this is as a short album, right? It's a short album. There's not a lot of songs. The songs are fairly short. And again, I think the way we listen to music now is just so weird where you could listen to this album on Spotify, get to the end of the album, and all of a sudden it's giving you a Menzinger song. And you're like, (laughs) wait a second. (laughs) But that feeling of being in your car, you just drove, you know, not that far away and the album's over and then it comes back and you get that opening part to TSR. It's just fucking awesome it's It's such a classic banger of an album opener that it's It's so such a good album opener you want to listen to it again the party is over a city skipping it's the same hook repeating you're you're like okay like I listened to this whole album, but I'll, I'll listen to this song again. And then all of a sudden you just, you listen to it twice. You listen mm-hmm. to it because something about that transition that the intro almost serves as a, a, a like flip side transition. I, I think that's part of the secret of this album being, you know, like 22 minutes long or however long it is where it seems like it's an hour long. Cause I just listened to it three times. What's funny is I listened to the like, original cowboy mix of it today which i've i've heard here and there throughout time but i don't i don't feel super tempted to like spend a ton of time with but i've i listened before and i listened again today and they the way that one starts is with like the the brief intermission song the instrumental song mm-hmm. into cliche guevara and it's like I remember I was listening. I was like, oh, it's kind of a cool way to start your record. Like, uh, maybe there's something to this. And then like, it was like whipped myself out of that. Like, are you fucking crazy? (laughs) TSR is the perfect way to start this record. This is crazy. I could see like devoid of all other contexts. Like that song would work as an album opener. It does have a good energy to, but given the name of the song you can't have an interlude yeah i I assume it wouldn't i mean i think i just chalk that song up to the same that got its name later i think i think all these songs like get their names later like they're not pivotal to the song probably that that's a song i've always chalked up to like there's a certain sort of i don't really know how to get at this but there's a certain sort of like what did i type here like low effort quality to it that I think is cool. I don't really know how to put this. I, I want to try and articulate this well, but like if they lie to Fat Mike and No Effects and say, yeah, we got a record, and they say, okay, we'll sign you, we'll give you this much money, go make your record, but they don't have that record. It's a little bit of like a cram session with your homework type stuff, right? And it's like, well, let's put this one on here that doesn't have any singing. I, but I think that the, the blessing and the curse of that is I've heard instrumental songs. I, I wish I could think of one right now on records where I'm like, Maybe the first time I thought it was cool, but you're sort of just like that. It has some grating melody to it or whatever. Whereas mm. this is just a, this literally is just an intermission. It's just like a, Oh, I like this. This is one, this is one of these songs on this record, but she's not yelling over it, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, totally. I think there's something to be said for not overthinking this album and my fans opinions. Some of the albums that follow after this, I can hear some overthinking is, yeah, is yeah. how I would interpret some of that stuff. And so, yeah, I, I love that song. I, it's always a sort of surprise to me when I get to that part of the album, like, oh yeah, this oh, one. Yeah. Intermission. When you're listening to these music, you're, you're given so many gifts of these hooks 
and these lyrics that you're you you, you hear the start of the song and you're like oh i can't wait till it gets to that lyric that one's so good uh it speaks to me and and this one it's like wait a second what is this oh yeah and there's enough variability in the song where it's kind of like okay here's a guitar part that's coming in and then you're back like focusing on it's cool yeah Warren's drumming and the drumming is like so consistently good throughout that you can kind of that's sort of like the backbone of the song drumming is great on that drumming is really good on this whole album going back to this being sort of against me finding their footing as a band as as a collective i think warren adds a lot to this this album i agree quick question before i forget it but like i'm a little embarrassed to say this and i thought about looking it up but like i had a moment where i thought that the brief and triumphant intermission was called um seventh inning stretch <laughs> here's what i don't know can does anything ring a bell as a as an instrumental song on a record with that title to you what i don't know <laughs> no, is if there's a different no. was it what i don't know is if there's a different record i listened to around this time that had an instrumental song at track seven called that or if i had a downloaded thing that called it that because is it track seven on you is it it's track seven it is track seven on it I swear to fucking God, we I had something. We can't include this in the podcast. Now we have to record an instrumental song called, called Seventh Inning Stretch. Say anything you want while I look up something called Track Seven, Seventh Inning Stretch. Let me see. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a little too invested in the results of this <laughs> Google search. I will say that, well, one thing I will say is, is I did give a listen to, what's the name of the remixed uh, version of this album? There's one called Original Cowboy, but I think what yeah. I think what that is is like demos released later. So I don't think it's like remixed of this. I think it's yeah, yeah. It's it well there, alternate. So version. the story is that there was two recording sessions, and that <clears throat> against me had book time in Ardent Studios, which uh, going through Wikipedia doing research for this podcast before getting on here. Uh, if you want to see <laughs> the list of bands that have recorded amazing albums at Arden Studios. It's like, Against Me should be very proud to include their name amongst that collection of artists because that was a good choice. That is a... I think it it was chosen specifically because of the replacements. Yeah, that's, I mean, amazing. Um, Alex Chilton in Memphis, like... so, But they they wanted to give the the producer of the album an idea of the songs uh, before they went in to record the final version. Ah. So they went and did a demo session in Florida at some studio. There's a song on this album, maybe even two songs that when they put the final album together, fat Mike was like, I like the demo version better, Um, which I don't know if that was his call to make necessarily, but I guess he was convincing enough that they used the demo version of at, I think one or two of the songs on the album. One, I, I think uh, I keep looking at the fucking record on my bed. Cavalier Eternal is one of them. I know that you hear the yeah. whole like ha 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 on both of them is like the same. It's the same take. That is uh, <laughs> that is a keystone moment for me as someone who has gone through the process of trying to record and make records for me. I fucking love artifacts from yeah. the recording process. I love it when someone's 
voices shouting in from the control booth or whatever. Like, I love that. And I, that, that might be the genesis of that for me, that one, two, three, four. All right. That's a good one. It's totally feels organic kind of fucking around kind of, yeah, it's good. So I know, I, I think you're right that there's another one, but I know that those two are the same on both. So I guess the other, the thing they released was like those demo recordings that weren't part of the original album. And I listened through those and, and I, I don't really need it. It's not, there's not much to discover there for me. Same. I mostly, I mostly don't need this kind of stuff. Like I, I'm sort of like, I mean, I had this conversation with Austin Lucas on the last one about the, like the snare drum on reinventing Axl Rose. I don't know if I've talked to you about this at all, but like, I kind of consider whatever the thing is on the record I heard the sound of a snare drum, the actual recording itself, all of it, like that's kind of a band member to me. That's like a part of the band. That's like, if that's imperfect, it's imperfection is is not just a thing you just kind of change. I just do feel that way. And I had a moment, I, like it was really interesting as I, around the time that I recorded that reinventing Axl Rose interview, they did a, uh, speaking of the replacements, like they reissued Tim, which is my favorite replacements album. And I don't think it's the coolest like, I don't think that's the coolest answer to that question, but it's close to it. Like maybe there are a couple, couple. What is the coolest? Uh, Hootenanny? I mean, yeah. I mean, you go to that and that's like the real coolest, but I think that like, <laughs> let it be and uh, please to meet me. What's the other one? Please to meet me. Is that what it's called? Yeah. That's, yeah. Th that's probably my two favorites. I'm a, I'm a normie when it comes to. I mean, I, no, I think that those are, I think those and Tim are all kind of like up there in it. It's funny because I listened back in a different way and I think I was vaguely aware that there was some things about the general sound or fidelity or mix of Tim, barely maybe, but they released this reissue and the level of like, you should Google it if you didn't, if you haven't yeah, read I'll, any of this, I'll check it out. It was like a crazy level of glowing praise, like big Rolling Stone album articles, Pitchfork articles, all this stuff about how like Tim is now the best replacements record because they fixed the fucked up mix. The The songs were the best, but the mix was fucked up. And it was like, in my mind is like, okay, I do think they're the best songs. I love that. I love the songs on that record. And if anything in there feels slightly off or annoying about the mix, then that's how it's supposed to sound. Yeah. Like, isn't kind of the, isn't this kind of like, sort of like a, kind of a band along the lines of the way we're talking about the recording of this record. Isn't this a little bit of a fuck up band? Isn't this a little bit of like a brilliant, but imperfect? Like, I mean, it can hurt your ears and feel a little grating. Like it's funny. I listened to them side by side and occasionally it was like, Oh yeah, that is like, there's some real rough treble in my, in my head in this, but I just don't know. I'm like romanticized by like, I don't give a fuck. That's the way it was. I'm, I'm with you. I, I feel like the only scenario I can imagine is if there was a band or an album that I didn't like that much. And then it, you know, I heard the remix or the remaster and it fixed it, but that seems unlikely in the first place because, but if you love the record, it, there's no way it's going to fix it for you. It's not going to get it better. I'll just say maybe I'm stupid. I never considered the snare on reinventing Axl Rose. Of course, now I can't not hear it. It's funny. It's actually additive to learn about how funny it kind of sounds. But it's you're not you're not stupid for not noticing that. You're pure your pure heart fifteen year old. You're like yeah. What I'm not listening for this bullshit. If I did notice it at all, it felt like a very conscious move towards this idea of 
a guy with an acoustic guitar and yeah. some homeless dude standing next to him with like a bucket, you it know, suited, it suited the lack of resources. It's no different than having to record that one in two days. It's no different than having to record this one quickly because you lied about having the songs written or write it quickly. All these things are part of it, you know, like yeah, I, and the charm shines through and there is a through line here. And we talked about this, you know, a little bit earlier before the podcast is in the, the world that we live in, it's really hard to like sit down and listen to an against me album and just be like, I'm right here. I'm in this tiny space of as the eternal cowboy. I'm not thinking about what comes later. I'm not thinking about um, reinventing Axl Rose. Like you're going to want to listen to more and going and listening to something like new wave with these butch vig production values I don't think that they're very well served by that on the later albums of like, you can hear all of the overdubs, all of the, you know, multiple track vocal recordings. I'm not saying that's not what against me wanted for those albums. They probably did. But for me, I'll take the shitty sounding, not because I think snares should sound shitty. I think it should sound like, I don't really want to take us too far down this path of like authenticity and whatever. I'll just say that listening to these things now, there is a stark contrast between the uh, the Butch Vig production method, I guess. And yeah. I, I don't, we talked a lot because as <laughs> you know, I went through like a little mini Nirvana phase uh, recently and was really baffled by this sort of like idea of like Nevermind as like an overproduced cock rock kind of album that Steve Albini and other people have tried to position it as. And I think it may be as simple as like, I think Nirvana is a band that could actually be well served by some of those production methods. And I don't know that against me was as much. Nirvana was well served by them. Yeah, I agree. We're going to we're going to cross that bridge. It's coming. But the way I land on it is that you are where you are when you record a moment to quote our our godfather of this podcast, Jackson Brown. It's called a record because it's a record of a moment. And the conditions are what the conditions are like the snare drum is what Warren Oaks brings in. You added him to the band. Here's what you got. It's got a little tambourine thing on it. That's what you got. And you know what is cool, even if it's weird? It sounds different than every other punk album coming out, and I can guarantee you that contributed in some way, whether consciously or subconsciously, to the greater thing being different. Like, it is different. Yeah, or ever. Any other punk album, period. Like, not even just of that time. Which, yeah. now that you're saying that, it actually sounds fucking crazy. Like, I don't care if you're at some studio paying $100 an hour to record your your thing. The studio engineer doesn't have a snare sitting around like he doesn't have a can't go yeah, to his friend's house a, to grab a snare there's a snare laying around yeah no it's good it's it's fun but then i mean what you do get on this album is the snare don't sound like that no it all yeah. sounds right have i told you about how i like because this is actually my entry point record for against me have i told you about how i heard this record i don't think so which which by default is how i heard against me i had this weird summer of my life i'm gonna go into like the most annoying person you could possibly be, which is study abroad student mode real quick. But I was in like the the summer right before going to study abroad in Spain and multiple of my roommates were out. Like they left for summer and did other stuff. And my old roommate Casey rented out a room to this guy. I, I wrote about this on like a little Patreon essay. 
I think his name was Chuckles, but I don't, but I think I'm conflating. <laughs> I think I'm conflating a guy named Chuckles with a different guy who I actually liked more, but has a name that's less memorable than Chuckles that rented out the room. Cause I'd remember, I don't even really know. I could picture the guy Chuckles, but I didn't really know him. I'm just going to keep saying Chuckles on this. This other guy that who was like a friend of his or in the same scene of him with who was running this room, I really liked this guy. He was a random kind of borderline stranger with my my roommate at the time. And uh, I'm in this room that's like a fake room. It was like these two bedroom apartments that you would turn into three and four bedroom places by like erecting a, a drywall, two things of drywall to make a room. And we rotated around the rooms like of the like multiple quarters or semesters we lived there. And I was in the drywall room at this time. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. What do you mean you were like... Because people moved out or like you guys because just took it turns. Yeah, it took turns. This was very uh this was a commune of sorts. How this egalitarian was... <laughs> of you. Yeah, we were good. I mean, there was drama around it. Like, let's be real about it. Not drama on my part, but like anyway, I was in that room, no soundproofing. This is my three months in the in the drywall room. So then the guy who's renting out my old roommate's room, he's in the in in that room, but he's playing on the DVD player that we used to watch like Beavis and Butthead and King of the Hill on and stuff like that. He's playing this music. He starts playing this music. I'd never heard against me. No idea. Literally not on my radar whatsoever. And what I remember is like being in my room, ignoring this guy. Like I didn't know the guy that much. I think the part where I get to know him comes after this but by way of this moment. But I... And listening and just over the span of a handful of songs. And you know how quickly these songs like rip by. But like when it gets to the song that does the sing your heart out, sing it like you mean it. And Laura Jane Grace does this brief little slight inflection of like Misfits voice. Cannot find everything you need in all of this. Potatoes, rice and bread. We'll burn it as we take it in. You're gonna sing your heart out, sing it like you mean it. You're gonna sing everything you think it. For some reason, I remember that being the moment that I was like, "What? What the fuck is this? Like, what am I? What music is playing in in my house right now? Like, I I, I was fine with the music my my roommates listened to. I liked actually a lot of it. Some of them I went to like Metallica concerts with and stuff like that. And like they introduced me to new things, but they weren't playing whatever I was hearing in this moment. And I remember going out and just being like. Hey, dude, probably not Chuckles, but maybe named Chuckles. I'll find out as research for this podcast. Like, what is this? And he was playing it for like maybe the second time. He'd gotten it from someone, heard it earlier in the day, was playing it for the second time. And then we had this moment of sort of like real, I, it was a really enjoyable conversation around like exactly what you just said earlier. This record finished went back to TSR again, finished and played multiple times. And I basically hung out with this dude for that night being like, this is the fucking coolest shit I have ever heard. And I remember that conversation dovetailing into like the new AFI album, like AFI was verging toward like full, like theater goth music and talking about how that was bullshit and how we were, we were mad about that. I just really, I really feel bad that I can't remember his name right now. I'm not, I'm going to find it out for the podcast, but that was my entry point reinventing Axl Rose and all that comes afterwards. And then by the time the next record comes out, I'm like fully in and have like seen him live and stuff. I got to say as a full blown adult, that's just the shit that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Like, no. <laughs> against me, other bands, regardless, I am not discovering music on my roommate's DVD player through the drywall, <laughs> through the drywall. 
it does like make me that that's amazing it it's reminding me of the fact that when i was listening like when this album came out and like i got this album and i'm like years at this point there was no context to me of like against me like this this whole notion of like selling out which feels like such a unfortunately through line for the band now um your former guest dan ozzy who's done an amazing job both in trainee and in sellout of of talking about these different reactions and different people i had none of that context i just got to enjoy it without that and i don't think it adds any enjoyment to the music whatsoever no, to yeah. consider i mean it and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna include that as far as when you get to the next album and searching for a form of clarity and there's all these lyrics and songs about the music industry and I was just like who cares they didn't do it to themselves no but they but they did make a documentary that highlighted all it was like hey look here's what's happening <laughs> and then made a record that's like here is literally like like we're spelling out the record industry stuff which is awesome in its own way but also like something about this record. I think I talked to you about this a little bit right before we were recording it, but like, that's not here. Little allusions to it, little like sort mm. of vague allusions to mm. it are here. And it, what's weird is that prior to this, when we get to disco before the breakdown, honestly, it's more clear on disco before the breakdown, which comes before this, like this record feels to me like this little kind of like in between moment that is just feels more, personal like the like prior to this it feels like sort of social political commentary and after this it feels like a meta narrative on the idea of selling out and everything not to say all the songs are about that and then and then later on you have this whole other chapter like that that comes with transgender dysphoria blues and everything and all these things tell these like very real and interesting stories mm -hmm. something about this one feels like it exists in this other like the, i remember the first episode of the the first season of this show, the Jackson Brown one, the first one was with William Matheny. He said something that like never occurred to me, but never left me was that like these songs sound like they exist on this like unidentifiable apocalyptic landscape or something like some sort of like, you can't tell exactly where you are. You're just placed there. Something about this one. Like, I feel like I'm living inside someone's tour diary kind of yeah. and there's and they're like I'm going to write this in a way that's not specifying any specific places or people or anything and just it's like this is all going to approximate a vibe and a feeling but I'm not trying to say anything whereas prior to this against me is trying to say something and after this against me is trying to say something whereas something in here just does it it feels like something different than that party album in that way which also makes yeah. sense why you can immediately bond with someone like listening yeah. to it through a wall because it's it's made for that sort of thing but i'm i'm also thinking about your jackson brown series and i think i talked about this in those episodes of i've noticed this pattern with musicians where 
when you're an early songwriter, you're just going about writing about your life. And this is what happened. Girl broke up to me. I went down to, you know, the night they burned old Dixie. I don't know. Uh, And then at some point, your life becomes being a musician. And that's hard because I'm not faulting, like in this instance, Laura, for writing songs about the music industry, writing songs. That was her life. That was what you when you're on tour for nine months, 10 months out of the year. That's what you're experiencing for me as a music consumer. And I'm very conscious in this moment of my role in this as a consumer. That is not interested that I can't relate to that, really. Or maybe I don't know if it's a relate or I'm just not as interested. But I think the same thing happens to Jackson Brown, where it's literally, you know, at some point you you see starting stop writing songs just about life and and sort of every man type songs which i think uh <laughs> you know reinventing axel rose is in a lot of like a lot of those songs are they're just these little snippets of life of different people different characters like who is this person i don't know but it's you know this is a story that's being told to me and and that's the stuff that i really love yeah you're like later jackson brown you're like Bro, I don't want to learn about Iran Contra right now. I want to... <laughs> well, I do want to learn about it, but I'm not getting anything. I'm not actually not... learning. Just yeah. yeah, just talking about lawyers and they're in love. And I do, I do think there's something here. I was listening to this thing about Rancid the other day, and it was like talking. There was kind of this moment of like Tim Armstrong songs that are just basically like music i love music like when i got the music i got a place to go like like this kind of thing there's a recurring theme there a little bit more like easy to caricature or like something in the rancid songs but i fucking love rancid and so i don't i don't say that derisively whatsoever it's like but like when you're saying when i got the music i got a place to go it's pretty much summing it up but there are multiple there are probably three or four parts on this record that are just basically like but but i got music I'm I'm playing music. We're making music together. That's what we got. That's what we're doing. And there's some sort of like camaraderie thing around like we're fucking busting around this country together and making music and we got that. I think it's a transition album. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Like I literally think it's this kind of in-between connective tissue and but also literally you know the, a lot of the songs again are about change about growing up about figuring out who you are and who you want to be who you want to become and i find that th- in those songs the resolution kind of seems to be the answer is not oh i know who i want to become it's i don't know so what do i have i have this moment a feeling a feeling i've always had is that, like people sitting down to write lyrics or poetry or something in a lot of cases would be better served just like eavesdropping on the person behind them at the grocery store and just like literally verbatim taking the words they said. And it's probably going to come out feeling like something more real than the thing you try to spin up as poetry. Read these lyrics. Like I might, I might like intersperse some spots in here where I just like read like the paragraph, a paragraph through of some of these lyrics. It's an into the sunrise aesthetic. Let's pretend this is an informed consent. That class division doesn't make an infantry. There is no incentive, no franchise opportunities. And the magazine spreads of fashion models, gas masks in hand. It's okay. It's all right. These are situations we learn to live in. 
when an invasion can bring a country its freedom, then unconsciousness is true happiness. No, I don't know what to say. So specific yet so I don't know. I'm gonna. I'm That's, gonna do no. That. This is a good transition because <clears throat> I really wanted to talk about the song "Disco Before the Breakdown." As a young teenager listening, I mean, let's be real. Like you're not you're not listening to the lyrics or really understanding the words to a lot of these songs when you're first listening. To, you're getting the feeling, and and other than like some super clear things, but reading the lyrics to this song now, it, it's really heart wrenching. Um, I don't know if heart wrenching is the right word, but you know, it, it's so clearly uh, a plea from Laura about what's going on inside of her. And I don't think I was well into my adulthood before I fully kind of grasped the full significance of that song. this is a good pivot from as the eternal cowboy. Like, I don't think as the eternal cowboy gives that level of like specific feeling from any song as you listen to them, it doesn't, it's not what it's doing really. Whereas uh disco before the breakdown as you're describing, and then you get tonight, we're going to give it 35% does a version that's teasing the first feelings of like music industry meeting type shit. And then uh beginning and an ending does, does it too. I feel like these songs get at, making you feel specific feelings in a way that those songs on that other record don't. Yeah. Um, and continue, and, continue with disco before the breakdown, but I don't know. There's, there's something to me that I'm like, why is this one, my favorite record? But then I listen to disco before the breakdown and these three individual songs lock into me in some specific way that I don't feel like the songs on this record that I fucking love do the records. They feel like they're there for a different purpose than these, uh, than the disco songs. I will say this, that spending t a lot of time with with both of these this week, I would say the song that's been most in my head has been beginning and ending. Like that song is just like seared into my soul. And I will say that um, that has not put me in my favorite place emotionally. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I, I don't, you know. I, I wouldn't say that I'm going through any particular endings right now or necessarily even beginnings, but it's just, it's such a fucking universally raw song that I can relate to at any age. And I think Against Me is amazing for this because I'm going to be honest that like those three songs, I wouldn't say that I've listened to any time recently, very long time, maybe maybe 10 years. And to pull that song on and just be like, I know all the words of this song. Yeah. I know I, I can sing every single word to this song. Cocaine and soda. Like, you know, co cocaine and soda playing Tetris in her underwear is like, come on, dude. What? 
like I've never been more more dropped into a moment that I've never actually lived in my life than the, the like vivid details of that. That's a perfect encapsulation of good songwriting too. In that, it's those vivid details drops you in a moment, and they have a really good sparkly quality to just the words. The words yeah, just okay. sound good. They Sometimes sound good, songs, yeah. it's like you're dropping me in a moment, but it's not the the way that these words fit together is not aesthetically pleasing. Something about the choice of those yeah, for sure. words, it, it it's just like a perfect little cup one. Same on that song. I'm like, when she says Florida to Florida by way of America, I'm like, fuck you for that's that's simple. But that is so as far as a way to talk about playing shows all around the country, Florida to Florida by way of America. Love that. Jealous of that. I love how nostalgic against me can make me for a state that (laughs) I've not spent a lot of time in, not wouldn't particularly want to spend a lot of time in necessarily, but that's also that specificity. Someone singing about North Dakota, like could give you that same feeling if they were able to, give you that specificity. Yeah, who, that. Else, who else pulls that off? Maybe like Rancid and Operation Ivy about the East Bay a little bit. Red Hot uh, Chili Peppers. Yeah, oh, come on. No. Yeah, you're <laughs> right, though. You're right, though. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you got like... <laughs> I would I would put Lou Reed in there. Okay. Like, yeah, th- there's not a lot of like New York name dropping necessarily, but every single song is like just dripping with sewer like filth who are we not thinking of yeah i think chili peppers was the was the the full logical conclusion answer Uh, toby keith (laughs) but like as you said with beginning and an ending like when the when the end of tonight we're gonna give it 35 percent finishes you you hear that little guitar thing happen you hear that song come in like you that that and, and and honestly, for me, that EP or single, I think it's technically a single that just has the three songs on it, but maybe it's just viewed as an EP now. I could be wrong on that. Don't quote me. But the um, I didn't hear that until years later. I didn't even know of its existence. I did go back to reinventing Axl Rose, and then we had the the record come out. Um, Searching for a former clarity came out like a year or two after I heard this one. But it wasn't until honestly, until probably like 2011 that I heard disco before the breakdown and I heard it. The reason I found it was because I listened to this uh, somehow in like some like against me YouTube rabbit hole or whatever around that time I landed on a uh, like record store performance, like a California record store performance of tonight. We're going to give it 35%. That is, I'm going to cut into this. I'm going to pirate it and cut a clip off of it and play it in this episode because I was just like, mm, what's this song tonight? We're getting it 35%. That sounds, that sounds interesting. And the way it starts, I can't like, you know, when people ask like an icebreaker type question of like what one concert could you, would you ever want to be at or whatever? Like I would consider wanting to be in this record store for this shit because it's so, I like instantly fell in love with that song and I'm going to play it.
you get to see them? I probably saw against me every time they came by for like six years in a row. Okay. But that would <laughs> yes. start, but that would start. So one thing that pissed me off was that summer before I studied abroad, I got into, I got into them by way of that moment that I described earlier and then shared it with a lot of my friends. And so then I went and I left and then fucking against me on that tour, went to my college, came and played at my college and all my friends went to that show at my college. <laughs> and so that was the, that was like that tour on as the eternal cowboy. And, uh, by the time I saw them, I, it was maybe before searching for formity, former clarity came out, but around that time at a warp tour. And then I saw them a bunch of times between then and like new wave or probably four years, four year period. Nice. I think I told you this story before about how when I was in high school, this kid I knew who I wasn't particularly close with, but I, I knew him was like, Hey, he just sent me it, like called me. I was like, do you want to go, do you want to go see anti-flag in Dallas tonight? And I was like, nah, not, no, <laughs> not really. And I swear to God, I swear to all that is good and heavenly that night. I the thought popped in my mind of like, I wonder when against me is coming into town. I I want to go see against me. And I looked it up and it was like playing tonight in Dallas with <sighs> anti-flag against me. It was so brutal. That is really brutal. That's, Which, that's again just goes to show how much that guy must have sucked that he, he described it as an anti-flag show. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did get to catch him. So this album came out, mega fan of the band. That documentary came out, bought it on DVD. And that that was really my first inkling of this, you know, this whole idea of, I guess, I mean, in general, up until that point, I just listened to music. I didn't really even consider producers, records. I didn't know what any of that stuff meant. I just knew like a CD came out and I liked it. And sometimes a new one came out and I didn't like it. And so it was some exposure for me as a kid to the understanding of sort of how the sausage gets made. And, but I, I mean, really the whole concept of selling out was sort of introduced to me through that documentary. Yeah. I wasn't thinking about that then. Shit. I was, yeah, I wasn't even, I was barely even like finding my own music at that point. It wasn't even considering that part of it, but you just, I could you, see, I could see how that a thing like that. I've seen enough YouTube clips from that documentary to like, it's one of those weird things where it's like, I haven't seen the documentary but I can also visualize the documentary and you can't really square those two things, you know, like I've seen, I know what it is, but I haven't fully seen it. As you say that, that like basically teaches you about the idea of selling out. Of course it would. Like I will say like the movie primarily and best functions as a concert film. Like it's mostly yeah. just great concert yeah. footage and to get that kind of gift when I was younger, it just improved all of the music. Cause then I had this visual image in my brain of what did these guys look like when they're playing these songs and, and what does that mean? So I don't want to make it's, it's, there is stuff in it and they are being courted by, I mean, there's interviews and stuff throughout with record labels and, and Laura and the band and people talking about this stuff it's very upfront about it but <clears throat> that's not that's not all it's about it, it's primarily like a really good concert right film. right and makes look like going on tour with a band look the most fun thing right, <laughs> in right. the world 
What was the like 15, 16 year old calculus of the reinventing Axl Rose shirt disco before the breakdown poster purchase? So that's something I was going to cop to is you <laughs> saying like, I, I didn't listen to disco before the, I, that was the poster that I could get. So <laughs> there used to be a website. Um, I think it's still a website called interpunk.com. Oh, yeah, yeah. And when I was around that age, when I was like in eighth grade, I think it was like my birthday in eighth grade and I got some money and this was in the early, not the early days of the internet, but I like had to really convince my mom. I was like, mom, there's this website. If you let me use your credit card, I just want to buy some merch off of this website and like, I will give you the money. You know, I have my allowance or whatever. And she was like, ah, I don't know. Someone's going to steal my credit card and they're going to steal my identity. We know mom, we know mom is smart with her fiscal decisions like this. Yes. Yes. My mom was very paranoid. Um, and so from that point on, from like ages 14 to now, <laughs> I would just look for, and, and I would, I would go on there like every day. Cause they would post like, Oh, we got a new yeah. shirt in, we got a new poster. in." so the disco before the breakdown poster I had was probably like 18 by 36 inches or whatever. It was tiny, but it was like the only cool. against me poster that they had. So I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm getting this. I'm, I'm, and then yeah, the reinventing Axl Rose shirt. I had a couple different against me shirts, but I remember that one was the most like, <laughs> just the, the image on there is very striking. And then people are like, what, why, why do you have Axl Rose on? I your know, shirt? but dude, that, that whole process was like, like it was easy to just use the, like the little silhouette of Jackson Brown for the first season of the show. And then like, uh, I like that Casadega one on bright eyes. So I use that. I was like, kind of a, like a little, like two night crisis for me to try and figure out the cover for this one. Cause like the inclination was to do that, to do the one from reinventing Axl Rose feels very iconic, but it was like, I mean, you can make the bold move of being against me and putting Axl Rose on the cover, but can you be the guy who makes the Against Me podcast who puts Axl Rose on the cover of that? It felt off to me, and that's how you end up at. So I tried. I don't, I don't want to. I, I don't want to spoil this for you, but I'm just gonna just gonna do it anyways, and especially for anyone who who listens to this podcast and doesn't end up watching. We're never going home. But uh, the next episode is all about we're never going home. I will be watching it for the first time in my life in full. Uh, subscribe now so that you get it in your feed. They talk in that about how Axl Rose uh, found got that album. <laughs> that somebody in his circle turned him on to the fact that this band uh, ha had made this album and that he, he asked them, his people got him a copy of it and apparently he just fucking hated it. <laughs> That's so good. hated it. And then according to the person in the movie, he, he found out where against me was from. And then he put a hex on them. <laughs> well, a lot of people like did shit to them. Like when people like fucking with their vans and stuff like that, maybe Axel, Axel landed his hex. I feel like you're moving out of this portion, you know, after this podcast of, of against me's career but having read tranny it's insane to me the levels that certain people went through to like trash them for their music decisions the idea that they were 
like threatened essentially with physical violence at times. Well, the, the idea, I mean, that's all crazy and one thing, but the part where essentially maximum rock and roll told people to do that. Yeah. Like what? Like I get, I get the maximum rock and rolls deal and I could even like find some appeal in some of it, but Jesus fucking Christ. It's really hard to grasp in this day and age like it would never occur to any i don't know maybe in some of these local scenes there's bands that are snooty or snotty or something that need to be put in their place i don't know but having been in like a smaller kind of music scene when i was in college nobody cared that much there was always there was some other band like and maybe they just planted their flag in the ground too hard i don't know but i don't again being some suburban kid in Texas who just got a hold of these records randomly and, and love them. I never knew until I read that book, like, wow, no wonder they're writing songs about this. They, it wasn't just their perception of how people were perceiving them or going back to the old stomping grounds, going back like green day and going back to Oakland and, and, you know, people kind of are not nice to them. Like this was, this was for some real shit. Yeah. Active. Yeah. And what's, what's interesting to me is that I've said versions of this over and over again, but like some of what they say on those, the, the very first EPs and reinventing Axl Rose could be seen as planting a flag in the ground. They don't, they don't plant that flag any deeper on this record. If anything, what they do is the incremental step onto fat records, still in an independent label, just one that has more money and is going to give them more money and has more notoriety and stuff like that that's literally all the step is and essentially nothing on the record that's like here's our values that you can throw back in our face after this passes us by it's just a cool interesting human record that's really really special record which came out a fucking we doing this record right now we just passed the 20 year anniversary one week ago just yeah I mean, but that alone, that people were upset that they signed with fucking fat records. Like, and I mean, I, I, some of it comes back to like the lyrics and, and reinventing Axl Rose, like the song. And, you know, I, I feel like against me, they were playing loud and hard every night. And, but at some point, if you want to be a professional musician, like you got to get paid to be a musician. And it's like anything else where, you know, we live in a, a place where like the tourism economy is, is like a huge factor of that. And you got to make enough money in three months to be able to live for 12 months. So people just see these paydays and it's like, Oh, you got paid, but you don't know when that next paycheck is coming right. through necessarily. Yeah. And so I, the, the whole notion is just kind of absurd. And I, I don't, I'm sure there was a time in my younger man's life where maybe I would have been more idealistic about, it. I don't know, but it, it seems especially strange in 2023. It's possible you were, you were young enough at the time that you were already into it and they made that decision that it didn't register as something to piss you off. And for me, fat records, I was getting into the stuff. Fat records was <laughs> like the idea that that was selling out. That was me learning what was fucking cool, you know, like, yeah. that, <laughs> like it was like, so, so it just didn't register. That's all in retrospect, but here's what I'll say that what I'll cop to is that the next step that comes after that, I did, I did have feelings about that. I like not, not on the next record, but the record after that, it, that I did think, 
oh, I've lost my special thing. So then what does that mean for the people who did think they had their special thing down in fucking Florida? That's like, I don't know. Although, I mean, I'm sure a lot of that kind of outrage is like fraudulent, but I, I don't know. People claim these things and something in this band elicited a really extreme version of that in people. It's just the wrong reaction to like, I've had, I think betrayed is the wrong word, but I've, I've felt let down by bands before in my music life. The appropriate response is not anger. It's depression. It's letting go. That's fucking life people. Like, did you think we were all going to be in the basement of this fucking pizza parlor in Gainesville, Florida for the rest (laughs) of our lives? Like, no, that's not, yeah. how shit goes and so I, again i'm imagining a lot of those people that were mad were not like 45 year old dudes who have like no, been around the block no. and seen shit fucking changes i mean i like I, I liked it in the frank turner conversation where he's just basically like i did some of these same exact things four years removed and they were not a problem sometimes people didn't even fucking notice it and it kind of feel like i mean it's a little bit dan ozzy's book is some of it is like they're the last chapter in that book it's not a deal anymore i think that there's i think on the whole that's probably good for artists to just not carry that burden there's i think a dark sad side to all of it if you want to poke at it you could almost consider it like a not like we advanced past the need to like feel that imprisoned by selling out it might be that we tapped out and lost to like you know like to commerce and commercialization there's some level there's some level of that to it but at the same time, at least you're relieved of the personal burden. Yeah. Well, and here's where the hypocrisy comes in is live those values in your own fucking life. Like, That's don't true. put yeah, that yeah. on someone else and what you think they should do, because that's what it all kind of comes down to is other people. I, I just think if you're an artist, you just got to look yourself in the mirror. It's only selling out if we even can use that term anymore. If you like compromise what you want to do for a dollar. If you can look at yourself in the mirror and be like, I made the record that I wanted to make with the people that I wanted to make it with, then like, that's all, that's all that matters at the end of the day. It's just getting warm. I gotta say, I'm, I I do want to criticize you for selling out for this podcast, though. You really, I did have a uh, like wellness, a little wellness tonic. Send me some things, some like free little oh, things to try. I'm not gonna I, send. I drank them. I do, I couldn't tell if they did anything to me, and therefore I cannot endorse them on air. <laughs> <laughs> I said, feel free to send it, but. I'm not going to fucking compromise this podcast. You can't drink one wellness tonic and say, uh, no, I you got to do the of month. Them. You did? Yeah. No, don't say the name. Well, I can delete it. I'll delete it. <laughs> <laughs> um, Are you Okay, but you didn't feel nothing? I mean, I might have. I don't know. I did not feel anything. It was like <laughs> matcha. It was like matcha. It was... <laughs> It, Thing, it, dude. I I say sell out, man. I say like get your well, tonics. If they wanted get to get money. if they wanted to give me money, I might have like found the ability to to feel something. But tonic is money. Well, Tonics cost money. And if they give you a year supply, I, a tonic might be the wrong word for it. 
I have one of them still in my in my garage. I'll show it to you. I saved it before <laughs> having the last one. All right. Well, this was fun. What's uh tell me, have you listened to the new Rolling Stones album and the new Beatles song? What's what's the take there? Give me the Rolling Stones. Su- surprisingly not as bad as it could have been, I guess, is like the most generous. I think it's a well-executed version of a thing you don't have to listen to. It's, it, But I mean, it's almost like there's a certain version of that you could say that is like not as bad as it could have been. And in being that like down the middle, it's worse because it's less interesting. Yeah, to a degree. I, I Yeah, I have like not a lot to say about the stone stuff because it's just... It may as well be AI generated. Like it's it's just completely uninteresting, and I I don't really want to get my rock and roll from eighty year old dudes. So I'm just gonna yeah, <laughs> move on. Could, and let... Yeah, they they did what they did. They grooved along. Good for them. It's not. It doesn't revolt to you, but it's yeah. I agree with that. All right, Beatles. The, the Beatles thing. I watched the little twelve minute mini movie, which I thought was a Disney Plus thing, and now I. It's like everywhere. I it's haven't on watched like every I've, streaming service. I've heard the song and seen the video, but I haven't watched that. Are you familiar with the story of what happened? Generally, yeah. That it was like, yeah. The song is whatever. The thing that really stood out to me is at, at one point, Paul sort of asserts like, we got this recording of John's. I sat there and I thought, well, if we could ask John you know, do you want us to finish your song? And I just thought, you know, immediately it was like, he would be like, yes, of course I do. And I just like took some umbrage with that. Like, first of all, nowhere, I do not want to assert at all that I know John Lennon better than Paul McCartney. (laughs) That's not what I'm saying. I'm, I'm in all honesty, like he's probably right. And it's also like, it's a 12 minute little mini movie. So he probably agonized over it a little bit more than that, but just, it kind of seemed very just like, yeah, of course he would. And it's like, are we sure that he would (laughs) not generally in the asterisk, but in this specific song in this instance, like there's that piece of it. And then there's also like a lot of it is about the, the sort of, machine learning technology that they use to kind of extrapolate out this shitty demo tape that John recorded on a whim to like make it possible to like have a, and I don't love that. I don't love the implications. I then the technology is cool. That's like neat thing. Is it like it was, it was him and a piano and this isolated him from the piano and maybe put it on a, a grid to where you could sing along or whatever. Like, yeah, I mean, I don't want to spoil it. it too much for you, but essentially in the nineties, they tried to do this. The, right. the, they got with George and Ringo. They went to a studio and part amongst, I guess, multiple problems. But part of the problem was that because it's just a one track, um, the piano was essentially too loud and there was no way to like pull John's voice up without then like having the piano be like way too loud on the track, which sounds like me. sounds like me home demo recording story. It's very, (laughs) very much is that, but also like, I kind of like home demo recording. Exactly. Well, that's, I mean, I think I'm a little bit, this is post AI mixing, but like I'm moved by the sort of, semi-isolated hearing John Lennon's voice do that. 
sing a melody, sing those words. Yes. And then that's past the technology. And I'm and I'm affected and 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 I heard the sort of raw track a little bit. Once it's made into a song, I'm a little like you took a special thing and made it. it this is when it stops feeling special. The actual John part is kind of cool and never heard it before. And it's a little bit ghostly yeah, in a way because you're like listening to. I mean, all Beatles songs, you're listening to a dead man, like two dead men. But this is like different in that it's a little bit more personal and private. And But yeah, like and it, it, I has a, it has a feel of like to make you feel that way, too, melodically and everything, mm-hmm. you know. But the the parts that they add, I mean, so, you know, George passed away and they end up. I, I can't remember it, if they just straight up use his guitar parts or Paul just used the recordings that they worked on in the 90s and then re-recorded what George had done. But he's just basically playing the same riff as the piano. Like yeah. they just they they're old musicians. They've lost their fastball like they're not in this place of so that part of it's bad but the ai stuff i see how useful it is i see like i yeah to be able to hear john's voice like that is cool but i do feel like there needed to be more in this vortex of like you could did anyone ask if we should yeah yeah use the ai to take the piano down and release the john song you probably all you need to do like at the start of it i was like okay okay but then then by the by the chorus and everything you're like Man, this sounds like I could hear this on the radio right now in my car all the way to the store. And that's kind of the beauty of the Beatles that they don't exist in that. They don't exist in that world. They exist in their world. Paul McCartney does and Ringo does and everything like that, that they do, like collaborate with people, do all that stuff you want to do, move with the times. But like the Beatles don't exist in that time. Like we just talked about the Rolling Stones. They existed through all of those times and have versions of them that sound like all of those times, like to extreme amounts. The Beatles are preserved in a way that don't have that. And so to call this a Beatles song that sounds like that, it's like, I don't know. I don't need that. It's like, it, it's not totally dissimilar from the snare thing we talked about earlier. Yeah. I don't want to seem like overly negative. I, I think it's kind of cool that it exists like very surprising coming out of nowhere sort of thing. I do kind of wonder, like you can use AI to do all this X, Y, and Z and the other. Couldn't you have made the production sound like it was 1974 know, on everything else? I know. I don't think people want to do that, but I agree. All right, I got a computer that's going to die. Uh, Ryan, where can people find you? Uh, you can find my band, Bad Dads, on Instagram, Bad Dads Orcus. That's my band, too. His band is my band, too. Uh, and uh, on Spotify, we have a new album that came out this summer called Disappointing Manifestos, um, which, you know, I'm not trying to draw any kind of direct link to against me, but I don't think, I think it's very fair to say that our songwriting, uh, there is a, a seed, a kernel of, we're not trying to sound like that, but it's just embedded in the DNA of these songs are written by people who listen to a lot against me in their formative yeah. years. That's for true. sure. So very happy with that. Um, go check it out if you're so inclined to hear some new music that was not created by AI. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, absolutely not. All right. Thanks, man. Peace. Hey man. Casey, what's up? How you doing? Good. How are you doing? Good. Um, this is this is random, but I was like trying to figure out this guy who you left for a summer 
and this guy rented your room. It would have been like 2004, right before I went to Spain. I, I was thinking his name was I'm Chuckles, fading this conversation out because we don't actually determine who the person is. He has an idea of someone who rented his room around that time. I know that's not the person who showed me against me. Uh, either that means I had this interaction with someone who wasn't renting a room and just was there at some point, or I'm misremembering the person entirely. I have no idea. But... I gave it a try. I also texted the old high school friends group chat about a song possibly called Seventh Inning Stretch, and that turned up nothing either. So I don't know what I was doing around this time, but, uh, you know, <laughs> these are my truths and my memories. Uh, I hope they don't compromise the integrity of this podcast for you. Thank you for listening to the show. Uh, please rate and review it if you want to right now. Uh, tell a friend about it. And check out Patreon if you want a zine at the end of this series. And if you want to get these episodes early and with no ads. And just to generally support the creation of this show. Because I put a lot into it. And I really appreciate your support of that. Tonight I went to my local theater to watch the Taylor Swift Eras Tour movie. And then I came home and drank two beers and watched We're Never Going Home tour documentary that came out shortly after the record we talked about today that'll be the next episode it'll be on patreon first it's going to be a fun one thanks for listening girl i'm sorry but i'm leaving we're both at fault we're both to blame and it wasn't the other man there were other women This just isn't love It's just the remorse of a lie